You're listening to Trot the Egging, hosted by John Hetherington, working with Witness Rugby Union Football Club, sponsored by Boydells. This week's rugby story is a BFG who was hugely gifted at sports from childhood, particularly in tennis and cricket. Growing up, he found sport was his release and goal to for just a bit of normality, having struggled with a stammer all his life. He smashed school with relative ease and moved on to higher education in uni. Despite following Warrens and Wolves home and away, he played Union from school and found his way to the wits. He was a big part of the record-breaking run and numerous silverware wins. It's a spell he looked back fondly of. And now getting on top of his stammer via the Maguire programme, that's the big man's finest victory. Ladies and gents, Mr Sam Bryan. Follow, like, share, subscribe and endorse us via Facebook, Trot the Egg in. Twitter at Trot Egan slash at John Heath, Instagram Trot underscore D underscore Egg underscore in, YouTube Trot the Egan, LinkedIn John Hetherington, and Spotify Trot the Egan. So, Mr. Brian, how are you doing, mate? How's everything been? Very good. Long time listener. Happy to have finally made it on the Trot the Egan podcast, mate. It's good to be here. <laughs> so, just, just before we we get stuck into your rugby story, mate. Where was home for you and who lived at home with you? Yeah, so I grew up in Warrington, uh, Penk from Warrington. Lived in Warrington my whole life. Yeah. But um, grew up with my mum and dad and I've got a brother called Ben who's 18 months younger than me. So we're two school years apart, but only really <clears throat> a year and a half apart in age. Yeah. So where does that competitiveness come? Was just was just playing knee rugby growing up and stuff like that, sir? So my dad was pretty sporty. He he ran quite competitively. Uh, he played football to quite a good standard. And basically, he gave me and Ben the opportunity as children to play whatever sport we wanted. So actually, rugby, up until I was about 16... I only really played in the school teams, but uh, but I played a lot of junior football. But as a kid, where I was most successful was I played tennis uh, pretty competitively. So I uh, played in a few national tournaments, uh, did quite well in the local junior leagues. And I played cricket for Warrington Town as well. So um, right, up until... Okay. Under 16s, when you play cricket, once you get to a batting score of 30, you have to retire. And it, it, it was either under 15s or under 16s that I managed to go through the whole season and I retired every innings that I batted. So uh, I did the entire season without getting bowled out that, that's grim that isn't it so if you're good really, I know I know it's about sharing and that in it but really if you're good enough to stay in there to a degree I think you could you could probably go to 50 say couldn't you yeah but I think because the junior games are 20 overs a side I think it's to make sure that everyone Get everyone to gets to go yeah so but I played every sport under the sun, uh, but the majority of my time through primary school and high school was spent at the local tennis club in Penkerth. Spent all my 
summer holidays there. There was a group of us that went down all the time uh, who were lads the same age as me who all had brothers who were a similar age to our Ben, so it fit in really well. Yeah, like a straight friend, it shouldn't be a mate. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. So before we, we talk about Spark growing up and obviously how our cross paths, um, how was, how was school for you and, and what school did you go? Yeah, so primary school, I went to a school called Great Sankey Primary, which is in Warrington. But yeah. so something I've always suffered with, with since childhood is I've got a stammer. So at the moment, my control of it is pretty good because I've recently joined a speech programme that I'll get onto later on. But yeah. as a child, obviously, having a stammer where you can't articulate yourself as you want, particularly in the social side of things, made life quite difficult because you struggle to make friends because when you want to speak to people, obviously, you always have that fear in the back of your mind. Am I going to be able to get these words out? So my main social avenue for making friends was luckily because I was sporty. I think if I didn't have sports, I think socially, I don't know if I'd have had many friends growing up as a kid because I was a really shy, introverted kid because I suffered with a, well, I still continue to have a stammer. It's just recently I've got a bit more control of it. Right, mate. So when when would that rear its face? Would it be when you're under a bit of pressure or you're slightly stressed about something? Yeah, so the earliest memory I've got of it is I can picture the classroom. So I was in year two in school. And and it stuck with you at that, from that age. And I was reading out from a book, just like kids do in school. And I can yeah. remember st- stumbling over a couple of words and the kids in the class laughing. And then I think, I think there's some parts of it that are physical and there's some parts of it that are psychological. So my cousin also has a stammer. So I think genetically there might be something in the family. Yeah. But I think the psychological impact of the negative reinforcement of people laughing and then the next time I stand up to speak, I'm worried about if they're going to laugh. I think it yeah. turns into a bit of like a self-fulfilling prophecy of, oh God, what's going to come out of my mouth? Is it going to come out how I want? Is it going to be a bunch of erms? Is it going to be a block where my lips shut to say a sound and I can't physically get them open? So, yeah. so a lot of my feared sounds were sounds where my lips touched because then it felt like I couldn't get them back open. So saying... Brian, my surname for me was something that until probably I did my first Maguire course in November, Brian was a word that I could never say. So uh, I know it's jumping on in the timeline a bit, but um, when I come back from university, I had to re-register with a dentist in Warrington and I phoned up to register. And when it got on to the point of asking me my name, 
I just couldn't get Brian out. So for uh, for the last 12 years at my dentist, I've been registered as Sam Jones because that was the only surname that I could get out of my mouth at the time. Right. So since I've completed the course, I've obviously been into the dentist and said, I need to change my name to Sam Brian. And then she was asking me for the legal paperwork to show I'd changed my name, <laughs> which led to me doing something in the stuttering world, which is called a disclosure, which is where I say, I, um, I have a stammer, I'm working on my speech. When I registered in 2010, 2009, I couldn't say my surname. So I showed her my driving license, which showed my name. Uh, and yeah, she was quite happy to change it over. But it's just small things like that that kind of get on top of you. So every time I've been to the dentist since, I'd be a bit embarrassed because I'd walk up to the desk and I'd be like, I, um, I've got an appointment for Sam Jones. And it'd just make me I would feel a bit like down inside that my, yeah. speech, that my speech had got to me to a point where I couldn't say my surname. Yeah. So, so that's just a further negative reinforcement that makes the speech worse, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, 100%, mate. The fact that you had to prove who you, who you was and still have to do, like you said, your declaration and stuff. Because I, I have seen that on the telly, mate, actually, where people do that declaration and then it's a shame you have to but for for some that are faced all legally you do have to don't you mate but yeah i think I, it's like i said yeah like i feel like i've known you a long time and it probably is when you when you think about it but it's not in the vast scheme of things considering the age of us and stuff but i'd have never have noticed I yeah, don't know so, whether it's because you're really comfortable in the environments we've been involved in together or whether, I don't know, it's, it's something you can tell me really, mate. Yeah, so there's two types of stammerers. There's overt, which are the ones like Gareth Gates, where you st st stutter like that. Yeah. And, then, and then there's coverts, who most of the time can get out some version of what they want to say. But a lot of the time with covert stammers, they're doing mental gymnastics to know the sounds that they can't say and to try and avoid saying them. So I knew that there were situations that I couldn't do. So I wouldn't go through McDonald's drive through because I couldn't say Diet Coke, I couldn't say chicken nuggets. Right. So, but sometimes the situations that you just can't avoid. So I was coming back from a wedding with friends and I was working the next day. Uh, and obviously everyone's had a few drinks and we're driving back. Yeah. And there's myself and my wife, Chloe, in the car and there's another couple that we're friends with. And obviously... Driving back, everyone's like, let's go to Mackey's, let's go. So uh, drive up, praying that 
the option to go inside is still available because I know that I'm driving and that if we get to the window, I'm not going to be able to order. So we pull up and inside the shop had just closed. So you had to go through the drive through. Yeah. And, and normally, if I was with Chloe and the kids, she'd lean across from the passenger seat and order the food, which again is is quite embarrassing for me. But it was something that got us through that situation. But yeah. she was sat in the back and she was in no fit state to try and order food. So even <laughs> if, so even if we could have logistically worked it to get her to the window her yeah. order her order would have made less sense than mine okay but what happened was it was matt in the passenger seat matt blakey yeah he ended up kind of working out what was going on because i've known matt since i was like 12 so yeah so he ended up ordering across me just kind of shouting the orders so it's just little things like that that even though to people that i know it might not look like i've got a stammer in certain situations and certain words and sounds i just fall apart so and do you you get the dread sam yeah so um so what we call it on the mcguire program is the fear so it's like a feared situation or a feared sound. So yeah. I so I used to hate phone calls as well. Like I'd never phone anyone. Um, I would always see my phone ringing. I would have a look at it. I'd wait for it to stop. And, and then I'd text them and say, oh, um, I'm just putting the kids to bed or I'm just in, in, in the gym. Can you text me? What's up? So... Uh, yeah, so it's all those feared sounds and feared situations that really affected me. But yeah, so I joined the Maguire program November this year. So the Maguire program is like a peer support group. So everyone on the program is has a stammer or a stutter. They both mean the same thing. And yeah. What it teaches you is a number of techniques and breathing methods to speak more eloquently. So if you've got a stammer, you'll always have a stammer, but it's knowing the tools to be able to say what you want when when you want it. So when I was struggling saying chicken nuggets, before, yeah. as soon as I felt the tension in the end sound, I did a technique known as block release. So as soon as you feel the tension, you stop, you reset with something called a costal breath, which I'll explain in a minute. Yeah. You reset with that and then you say the sound again, but a bit more certainly on the first sound. So nuggets, just, um, just to really... So it's the costal breath that gives you the power to get the word out there. So when we're talking now, you're breathing, yeah. you're breathing from your stomach. So if you put your hand on your stomach when you're talking, you can feel it rising as you're talking, as you breathe. 
but stammerers use a technique called costal breathing, which is breathing from a diaphragm that's higher up. So when I breathe, I'm breathing with my rib cage. So my rib cage expands and contracts rather than breathing with the lower diaphragm, which is called your crawl diaphragm and it's a crawl part that's more likely to freeze when you get in those third situations whereas the costal one through doing the breathing techniques allows you to speak more freely so it's a technique used by opera singers to project the voice and to sing more powerfully but it's been taken by the Maguire program and used to help people speak more eloquently. And do you think, knowing all this back when you were a kid, would it have helped you, do you think so? Oh, massively. So there were a couple of kids on the course I did. So I did my initial Maguire course November, yeah. November last year, and there were, there were 12 new students, and there were three kids who were... 12 and 13 and I think if I'd have gone at 12 and 13 it would have transformed my teenage years and my early working life too it would have made a massive difference yeah it's just knowing about it mate knowledge is power isn't it and yeah, yeah so, you probably built a resilience you didn't realise you had yeah so but once you've completed the course and you're not avoiding phone calls and you're saying your surname and you can order McDonald's drive through sure. You realise how exhausting it was to constantly be trying to hide who you were and the fact that you had a stammer. So a lot of the psychological part is a lot of self-acceptance and just being happy that you're a person who has a stammer but who is working on the speech and is trying to speak as eloquently as possible. Yeah. Oh, fair play, mate. There's such science in it as well, isn't there? And, yeah. And it is a lot. As much as it's theory, you've got to accept the theory side. Practically, like them examples that you've just given, it you've overcome so much already and you've been yeah. doing it six months. Yeah, so have you heard the rugby coach, Kelly Brown? Yeah. Yeah, so he's got a stammer and he's part of the Maguire programme. And when he was Scotland captain, he did a BBC interview where his stammer was so poor they couldn't put it out to air. And I think he asked them not to put it out to air. But he's done right. the... Yeah, but he's done the Maguire programme now. And if you see him do a BT Sport in-game interview, it's, it's like he's a fluent speaker. So he was one of the people that I heard talking about it and that led me to joining the programme. So he partly inspired you, mate, didn't he? Definitely, mate, yeah. So having more people who talk about it openly, there's more room for people to go and work on themselves and 
go on the journey that I'm currently on with becoming a better speaker and a bit more self-acceptance, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, no, you can hear it in you, mate. You're getting a lot better. And like you said, just stick with it and be patient. There'll be times when you need to count on them mechanisms and techniques a bit more than others, but so be it. You'll get there, won't you? Definitely, mate, yeah. Yeah. Right, we'll we'll rewind <laughs> then, mate. So knowing the difficulties you've had, was sport the like one of the arenas where you could really be yourself and, and excel and maybe you put a bit more behind it as well because of that? Yeah, definitely, because obviously when you're concentrating on your sport, you're not thinking about other things, are you? So when you're yeah. in the moment on the rugby pitch or playing football or playing tennis, you're not thinking, is this word going to come out? You're just in the moment and it's a bit of freedom, isn't it? And like I say, as a kid, that was how I got my friends, was through the social interactions of sport. So, yeah, I played um, as some really good friends playing Tennis, I um, had a few at cricket, and then in school, all my mates were all the sporty kids because I played for every sports team in school. Played football, played rugby. Yeah, I was into anything and everything physical, really. Yeah. So when when we chat primary school, mate, what were your main? What were your main sports, and and how was you playing club sport? Or was the sport a difficult sport to get involved in club-wise? So school was the only outlet for you? Yeah, so I played football um, in school and played for a team called Eagle Sports. I played yeah. tennis at, at a local club, but rugby was only in school. But obviously, because I'm a big lad, the tactics in primary school were mainly just give the ball to Sam and he'll just run through people. So, <laughs> so I'm not sure technique-wise if that really prepared me for playing the sport in the long term, yeah. which is why I think potentially New Zealand have got it right, how they play in weight classes rather than age. Because if, right. like, if you're a big kid like me, I'm not learning how to carry the ball into contact because I'm just walking through lads the same age as me. It's only yeah. when you get to 13, 14, 15, 16 and lads are starting to catch up in terms of if they're not as tall as you, they can at least be as physical as you, if that makes sense. Yeah, and yeah, then, yeah, it's... Go on, mate, that was me, that, sorry. Yeah, and then because they've been a bit smaller, they've got the technique a bit better as well. So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that about the weight class. I like that idea though. Yeah, so New Zealand don't play by age range; they play in weight groupings to to make sure that the lads that are bigger or smaller have the opportunities to develop the skills a bit better and it makes you it means that you're up against people your size so you've not got an advantage being the biggest kid in the school like I was and yeah and unbelievably 
was actually quite fast as a kid. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So even though it looks like I'm running in the quicksand now, <laughs> um, I actually had a bit of a yard of pace on me. So I'm only laughing because I've never looked quick. And I'm, <laughs> there's no. there's running in like quicksand, and then there's my speed, mate, like snail's pace. So <laughs> at least you look like you were fast at one point. <laughs> So when do you know all them sports, mate? Do they all enhance attributes that you take into sport when you were a bit older? Were you able to count on a few little things that that helped you with the rugby or? Yeah, so definitely tennis and crickets or hand-eye coordination, isn't it? So yeah, like so it definitely. It definitely helped me in terms of moving forward, but ten, but tennis and cricket are quite isolated sports, aren't they? Like you play by yourself. So yeah. even though cricket is a team sport, when you're batting or bowling, it is kind of individual. Uh, and particularly tennis, you're out on the court by yourself so the, the teamwork inside of it I got from the football so I was a Nemanja Vidic style centre half just kicked anything that come near me and then Class. and then and then if I got the ball the ball just got hoofed towards one of the corner flags for the quicker lads down the wing or up front to chase yeah but I can just imagine not even having to jump for headers and that no, so um, I was actually coached for a bit in junior footy by a bit of a witness Vikings legend. Uh, have you heard of Phil McKenzie? Yeah. Uh, he was the hooker in the 1989 World Championship side that everyone in Witness talks about because it's probably yeah. the last time Witness got close to winning anything. <laughs> uh, yeah, so his lad played in the team and I think when we were about 14 or 15, Phil took over coaching the team. Yeah. Right. So, so you're amongst giants and didn't realise. Yeah, I mean, that's it. It's only when I... So, obviously, everyone knew that he used to play rugby, but it's only yeah. when I really uh, come down to the wids and you hear everyone talk about 1989 and the World Club Championship that... I realised how good he was and what a witness legend he is, really. Yeah. Well, that's the beauty, though, isn't it? You don't, as a kid, you don't want to be... Well, we all love it when we're starstruck, but it doesn't help you. So it probably done you a favour. Yeah. Definitely. So with, with you smashing all them sports, mate, and, and still being able to play what you want because of the age, how did you take that into high school and how was your transition into high school? Yeah, so transitioned into high school and pretty much everyone from my primary school went up to my high school. So I already had a little bit of a social circle there. And then um, I played for all the sports teams in high school. But high school is probably where I struggled the most in terms of speech. Right. Because obviously there's all the hormones and the testosterone that starts to come in. I I did get 
like really, really shy. So I had a small circle of friends and I didn't really venture away from that. But in terms of sporting wise, I played for the football team, rugby team, was captain of the cricket team. So I played all the sports in high school. And again, that gave me relatively most of my social circle. I actually played centre for the rugby league team in high school. Which How did you find that, mate? Which I know you've seen me play centre for the Wids and you can imagine how that worked out. <laughs> but, but to be fair, I didn't do too bad. Um, always got caught. You're just an extra second rower there, though, Sam, really. Yeah, but always got caught with a couple of high tackles out in the centres because that's where they put all the lads that have got the footwork, isn't it? Yeah. So, always ended up catching the odd lad with the lazy arm. But apart from that, no. Um, I just like to get uh, inside a bit and get through a bit of the work. Yeah, but it was good. I enjoyed it. But I think the reason why I didn't play for a junior rugby club because I've been going to watch Warrington and Wolves every week since I was like five. But, but I think the reason why I didn't get involved in junior rugby was because I don't think my mum wanted me to play because obviously there's a perception that rugby is a bit rough and uh, my mum's not from an area that's rugby mad so I don't think right. she really I don't think she really got the benefits of it yeah really. well, it, it can be rough mate can't it but also on the other hand it can be it can be like the making kind of which I'm yeah. sure we'll talk about in a bit when it comes to the team environment and not only playing yeah. but the social side which you've brought up a few times yeah, were uh, you being captain of the cricket mate how did you find leadership to be honest at that time it was quite difficult because obviously you're having to set fields and decide who's bowling but again, because you're in the sporting environment and you've got so much mentally that's going on, you tend to be able to get through it all right. So it wasn't too bad during the games. It was kind of around it in the changing rooms and that that maybe it got a bit more difficult because when you're in the moment, you tend to be able to do a little bit better. Yeah. And you mentioned before about a bit of rep stuff in a couple of sports, mate. So who did you who did you play rep stuff for? Or you mentioned the town, didn't you? Well, so Excuse me. yeah, so Warrington's only really got one cricket team. So it's like you say that you're playing for Warrington, but there's Warrington and there's a club called Appleton as well. So um, I played for the Warrington Club and then I did go down to like a Cheshire-type trials, but if you think that rugby union is a elitist sport, you want to try making it in cricket. It's Unless you play for the right clubs and your parents have got the right contacts at whatever private school, it is really difficult to get onto the 
rep stuff because it's all the lads that go to the same private schools whose coach went to that school that get the reps and then obviously everyone else is fighting for the crumbs then aren't they yeah and is that have you noticed that when you got older or did you see that straight away so well I only really went down at the end of the under 15s season and then I stopped playing when it was a transition from 16s to open age um, the cricket games then went to 50 overs so it was like a full day on a Saturday so yeah. I, uh, I took a bit of a step away from it when it moved to open age I think I only played one open age game and, and because it was my first game I, I was batting a bit lower down the order and I spent all day fielding and didn't get into bat because we bowled them out quite cheaply and then our first four batsmen knocked off the runs so I remember driving back thinking I just gave up eight hours of a Saturday and I think I'd touched the ball once in the field and I'd put my pads on and sat there for 20 minutes because I was next in to bat and I thought I'm not coming back <laughs> that was me done yeah, then I bet it was mate I bet it was so, and was it tennis you said you'd excelled in as well, mate? So, how do you find tennis? And <clears throat> was it something you took to straight away? Yeah, so my mum and dad played tennis and they took me to tennis coaching from as early as I can remember, yeah. So, um, I played for the local club, Penker, but then I was quite successful in the Warrington junior tournaments as well so I got to the finals of a few of them uh, and uh, I represented the Warrington Town team in something called the Cheshire Youth Games which is basically like a multi-sports tournament in like more of the niche sports that not a lot of people play so like tennis and stuff like that so um, it was me and another lad from Warrington that represented the town in that and we actually won that yeah so that was quite good but then again kind of played played that till I was 16 and uh, and then when I moved away to university after college kind of knocked it on the head for a bit then and I've dipped my toe in a few times for a quiet comeback, but never really gave it another decent go since I was about 16 or 17. Right, mate. So uh, it's whether the body could do it now. No, mate. Uh, I think the shoulders that destroyed now from rugby, <laughs> I don't think I'd be able to serve. I don't think I'd get my shoulder yeah. high enough to hit a serve anymore. It's no wonder I'm. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Right, mate. So, coming towards the back end of school, then what was, what were your options and what were you looking to do? What was the ambition? So, in terms of academically, um, I was lucky to be really gifted in school, so I didn't really have to apply myself that much. And I was walking away with pretty much straight A's in 
every subject bar German because I I didn't really see the value in German, but school obviously forced you to take a modern language. So I think I got A stars and A's and everything bar German. So so I had the choice of pretty much whatever I want, but um, I went to Carmel College after school. So there was only me and I think one lad from my high school that ended up at Carmel College. So a lad called Eddie Ralph, who's one of my best friends now. Um, Mm -hmm. We were the only two from my high school that chose to go to Carmel. And it was because the maths department there was one of the best in the country and maths was what I was particularly good at in school and could make a real difference at so my aim was to do something professionally in a industry that needed someone that was skilled at maths but yeah but that was probably as advanced as my um, career planning had got so um, I didn't know what the job was. I just knew knew that I was really good at maths and I quite enjoyed it. So I went to Carmel College to do uh, maths, further maths. Uh, I did business. And then as a bit of a more social one, I did PE as well. So sports studies. Right. And how long... Were you at Carmel for? Is that a couple of years, that, Sammy? Yeah, so that's two years. So um, I made pretty good friends with a couple of lads from Witness. A uh, lad called Callum Whitby, if you know him. Yeah, I know Callum, yeah. And a lad called Matt Atherton. I think he lives Yeah, in- Tizzy. Yeah, uh, I think he lives yeah. in It's now Tiz. So the four of us, so me, Callum, Tizzy and... And Eddie were were like basically like really tight in college and were pretty much inseparable the time that we were in there. So yeah, uh, I formed quite a good close social circle there. To be fair, so um, Matt was in my maths class, and then him and Callum were really good friends, and then. We just kind of formed a bit of a force in there. Yeah, it's two good lads to be fair. Yeah, Callum yeah. and Matt, mate. So you've you've met good lads. So when when Carmel's coming to an end, mate, where, where do you decide to go and what do you decide to pursue? So again, uh, my planning was as good as I like doing maths. I'm quite good at maths, so uh, went to Manchester University to do maths. And yeah, I went there for two years. Um, really enjoyed that. Um, again, uh, so you get put into halls of residence when you move there. Um, I got put in halls with, I think there was eight people in my halls, and I think six of them were from outside of the. UK so so they formed their own 
social circle and I couldn't really get in there with them. So I did struggle a bit socially in university, but um, I made a few good friends. So the lad that I went from high school with to college, he went to Manchester as well. So um, I ended up hanging out with him and his roommates a lot of the time. Uh, yeah. One of which was the captain of the law rugby union team. So while I was in college, I started playing rugby union for Eagle Sports. I did two years of Colts there. Um, we actually won the Lancashire Trophy, Eagle, uh, in Colts. And the final was played at the Wids. Yeah. Yeah, so my first game at the Wids was actually a Lancashire Trophy final. And unbelievably, mm-hmm. and, and I know you'll find this hard to uh, think, but I almost went the full length of the pitch off a kicker. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm not sure who we played in the final, but I caught a kickoff, handed off a lad and nearly went the full length. I think the full-back dragged me down about five out and then we ended up scoring but oh. <laughs> but unbelievably yeah um I actually had a pretty good game in that final so maybe it was a precursor of coming down to the wins maybe the psychological side of having a good game meant that when I rocked up at the mm. wins all those years later it felt all right <laughs> so do you know when you're in when you're in them big games or the the big tournaments, mate, whether you're as an individual or a collective, how did you deal with the build up to the game and and how was the build up to that final, mate? And how did it feel when you're in the heat of the moment? Are you someone that can manage to keep the composure or do you need someone to settle you down? No, so to be honest, I think I'm quite chill, like pre game. So I don't think I really get to riled up until I'm going out for the actual match. So even in the warm-up to like a big tennis match or a big rugby match, I don't think I'm climbing the walls or anything. Like, I think I'm quite calm until it's actually walking out to kick off or to start the game. And then I think it starts to build a little bit then. And then once, yeah. and then once you get your first contact, it's just into another game then, isn't it? Yeah, and I think you're quite lucky because you you probably get an early touch there in the second row, or you're off a yeah. kickoff. Yeah, so I always tend to be stood where the kicks go. Yeah, the kicks seem to follow me around, and despite what Andy Mack normally says, I think I catch more than I drop. So I always <laughs> end up getting a, always end up getting an early whack, and then normally I'm pretty hot on the kick chase as well. So normally I'm there or thereabouts for making the first catch first tackle if we're kicking off as well. Yeah. No, so at at the back end of uni then mate, when you're finding your way in rugby, did it did it cross your mind to play it when you left or would you just gonna wait and see what you wanted to do when you come out? Was there a plan when you left uni? No, so what happened was I left university when I joined the fire service. So my mum worked in a school and they had a careers fair and the fire service were there saying that they were recruiting um, 
for something called the High Potential Development Scheme. So she brought that home for Ben, my brother, but I saw it lying around on the side when I'd come home for the weekend and yeah. I applied and the selection process was quite rigorous. There were personality tests, there were lots of online tests uh, and they ran this high potential scheme for two years, intending to take two people each year. And the year before me, only one person had got through the process. So they'd only took one. But the year I applied, me and another lad called Elliot got through. So um, how the high potential scheme works was that we do a bit of firefighting, but then the fire service paid for us to go to university at UCLan in Preston and study fire and fire and leadership. And then we were supposed to be on a fast track through the ranks then to get promoted a bit quicker. So I joined that when I was 21, no, uh, 20. And then um, in my first year at university there, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, got pregnant. So um, I didn't really have time to be playing rugby because I was trying to work, go to university, and I had a young child at the same time. So life kind of took over from sporting endeavours for a few years while we um, tried to get ourselves on our feet in terms of getting a house and um, saving for things like that. So my entire time was took up either at work, studying for the university course that I was on or raising my daughter. Being a dad, mate. So how difficult was it juggling all three? To be honest, I don't think I was prepared for how difficult it was having a kid. So when my daughter was born, I was only, I just turned 22. So I was basically still a kid myself. So the, the transition from not having any responsibility and working in a pub while I went to university part-time to getting quite a serious job and having a child in the space of a year, it was a big transition. So the juggling it was quite difficult because obviously all my friends were still young and all still going out all the time to the pub. And I had to kind of try to manage that and work and raising a family. So the juggling act as a young parent was particularly difficult, yeah. Fire service, mate, and was it always the plan to go full-time and climb the ranks? Did you just want to get the call and, and how's the fire service treated you and how's it still treating you? Yeah, so I, when I first joined the fire service, I was obviously on this high-potential scheme, but yeah, the scheme wasn't run particularly well, so it was run by a lady that worked in the learning and development department but really it should have been run by somebody that was operationally based and knew the 
trials and tribulations of what it takes to get you promoted operationally. So that kind of fell by the wayside when I finished university. But I worked at Winsford for a little bit. So my first posting was Winsford. So quite far away from Warrington when my daughter had just been born. And then yeah. I managed to get a move back to Warrington 2011. And then in terms of looking to get promoted, to be honest, so to get the qualifications to take charge of the fire engine, you have to go in something called an incident command suite, which is like a virtual reality sim so it's a room that's got a big screen tv and it's like a virtual incident and that for me with the stammer was particularly challenging so i worked at warrington 2011 to 2017 and kind of put off looking at going for promotion or being able to take charge of incidents because my speech and my stammer put me off going in the command suite I knew that I was capable but I wasn't sure if the nerves and the pressure of going in there would lead to my speech not being particularly good um and then it's understandable that. yeah so and then um 2017 I moved to Pencuff because that's when Pencuff fire station opened um and my manager at the time was a fellow called gary simpson and to be honest i know he'll cringe when he listens to this but gaz was is the reason why i started to look at becoming a officer and to get promoted because he was the person that pushed me and he was the person that really fought my corner in in times where my speech in assessments wasn't the best. He was the one that was saying, I've seen Sam on incidents. I know that Sam's capable. It's just because the assessment to do it is in this extreme stress that his, that his speech might not be the best. And he's the one that kind of pushed me and motivated me to go for promotion and to start to climb the ranks kind of thing what a guy eh? yes but uh, his daughter would be a good podcast guy that guess his daughter is samantha simpson so she's played rugby for uh england and she's done kabaddi have you heard of kabaddi that mad sport that they play on uh oh seen it when sky yeah. got it a little bit yeah they have to like like cross each other's line and not get smashed. Yeah, yeah so yeah. she's played Kabaddi for England as well, mate, so she's definitely worth trying right. to get on the pod. Yeah. So, do you know when you're going through these situations, mate, and you feel like your stammer's getting a grip of it and maybe hindering progress and promotion, what does that, what does that do for you in the workplace? Because by all means, the facilities are top-notch because, like you said, Penkers are still relatively fresh and new, isn't it? You go past it and it, it looks looks exactly what it is, like, top-notch. But when when it's coming down to, like, the likes of Gary and that, vouching for you, 
Did it ever put you off, Sam? Yeah, oh, mate, 100%. So the first time that I went for command assessment, I must have said um, a million times because my filler to fill gaps when I was struggling to speak was I'd say um. So right. the first time that I went for command assessment, I ended up stopping halfway through because my voice had just gave up. So there was a lot of hurdles and a lot of setbacks, but yeah, to have to have the push to keep on going was really what I needed. And yeah, like I say, Gaz has made a massive difference to me professionally and personally, yeah, like he's given me the confidence in work to do stuff that I never thought I'd be able to do. Like I knew that I was capable and I'd see people get promoted and I think I'm just as capable of them. But I just didn't have the confidence in myself and my voice to push through and to go for it. And would would hand gestures, would sign language, would that why that have have made the playing field a bit more level for you? Or no, because like a lot of it is how you communicate with people at incidents and how you brief your teams and all that sort of stuff. So um, a lot of it is the content of what you have to say, as well as how in control of the incidents you see him. So it is definitely a vocal test as well as a aptitude test. Right. Okay, mate. And then when did when did you and, and your good mate Matt come and find the wits and why why was it the wits? So I think I'm, I'm trying to think of the year. It must be nearly 10 years ago now. So Matt is married to Siobhan, who was his girlfriend yeah. at the time. One of Siobhan's best mates is Ashley Griff. So yeah. Matt and Tom Griff had become friends. Um, Matt used to play a bit of amateur rugby at Crossfields. Uh, Tom obviously had got talking to Matt about rugby. And then... yeah. It was towards the end of Sean, Sean's reign as the second team coach. Okay. So I think it might have been Sean's penultimate season. Yeah. Uh, the twos were scratching around for a team. So Tom asked Matt, and then Matt knew that I'd played a bit of rugby union at Eagle and at university for the law team. So yeah. me and Matt ended up rocking up for the twos for the last four or five games of that season. So right, and how did you how did you find it at the twos level compared to like playing for the Eagle Colts or playing at uni? Was there a difference? Well I think my first first experience of the twos was not how the twos is because obviously I think there was like 13 in the team. They were getting relegated. I think that first season that I come was a bit of a difficult one because they were always scratching around for a team to the point of where me and Matt 
rocked up and got straight into the team because he had nobody else. But it was it was definitely you could see the potential in the club. It was a lot more organised and there was a lot more going on than at Eagle. And you, you could see that that they took it a lot more seriously. But you could also see at that time they were struggling for getting a 15 out on a Saturday in the second team. So what made you come back? Um, <clears throat> to be honest, things have got a bit more settled at home. We'd bought a house. Uh, I was settled in work and I just liked being part of a team environment. So I'd obviously met Tom a few times socially and met all of the rest of his circle of friends when like Matt had invited me out on trips out and tricked me into going to a Witness Vikings game once when I thought that we were going somewhere <laughs> else. But yeah, so because I started to get to know a few of the lads, I just really enjoyed the social side of things. So the next pre-season after that, I think I started turning up to most of the training sessions. Yeah, so nice. I just really enjoyed getting back into a bit of a team environment, really. Yeah, and when did you feel like taking it serious enough to push for the first team place and how did you find it when you got that place? So I think it was that next pre-season. So my, my first year kind of with a toe in and out of the first team was Westies last year. Right. So I did a bit of the pre-season. But I played pre-season a bit tactically. So when we did contact, I kind of knew that there was a lad in the first team that was a bit defensively suspect. Yeah. I won't say who it was, but every time oh, I got nice. so every time I got the ball, I just kind of ran at him because I knew I'd be able to get over the game line type thing. And I think that might yeah. have give give a bit of a false impression that. I actually knew what was going on at that time because uh, well, <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah, so because I'd played less seriously at Eagle and at the law team, I didn't really have a good grasp of the tactics. So I think I played one or two games in the second team, and then my first first team game was Carlisle. Away, it was also Tom O'Neill's first game. Yeah, that's a lovely first game, that isn't it? Yeah, so I didn't go on the bus because I was working nights afterwards. So I drove up right. by myself to Carlisle, um, and to be honest, the game was far too quick for me. Like I obviously didn't have the experience under my belt to cope, and I can remember. I think I got subbed about. 20 in and I thought oh thank god I've been taken off here I was absolutely drowning but then uh, Lewis Witty got a dead leg and couldn't shake it off so I ended up coming back on and playing the rest of the game and I think that was my last first team game for about three months <laughs> Right and it didn't put you off though no it just made you maybe 
get stuck in a bit more when the intricacies and the shapes and stuff. Yeah, so I went back to playing for the twos. I think Sean was still coached that last year. Right. Um, and yeah, so because Matt was playing for the twos then as well, I wasn't that upset with going back to play for the twos because I was well aware that positionally and tactically, I clearly still had a lot to learn. So, right. so I played the odd first team game here and there. So, I think I played Manchester at home. I think I played against Douglas that season as well. Right. Essentially, but yeah, uh, I probably only played about five or six first team games that year. And then, yeah, that's fair enough, isn't it, mate? Like a yeah. little, like taster sort of thing, isn't it? You're in and then you're out and. Yeah, so well, finding was, the right moments and the right games, I suppose. Yeah, so it was definitely a good experience to have, but I definitely needed a better, longer one in the twos just to get used to how the proper game of rugby union was played. Because I think Eagles, not to talk down about Eagles, because I love my time there, but Eagles, a lot of rugby league lads trying to make rugby union work right whereas the wids is rugby union lads who know the tactics and know how to play the game if that makes sense yeah Although, yeah yeah well yeah there's been a spell where we've we've definitely relied on rugby league people and lads isn't they coming in helping yeah. playing but fundamentally we we are a bunch of lads that can play ball but understand both and the, yeah. and the differences aren't we definitely yeah yeah so I'll talk us through some of your fondest memories with the Wids and how well you've done there and talk us through how you felt during that record season and was there ever a time when you never felt it was coming to an end before it did or no so I think when Tank came in, obviously, I know Tank says to everyone that they're the best. But I remember sitting down for a pre-season and Tank come in and he said, I'd like you to play quite a lot of this season and I'd like you to play in the second row. So I was like, right, OK. So um, I was either on the bench or starting most of Tank's first year. Yeah. And then... Did Tank do two years and then leave the start of the third season? I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so I kind of played a lot of those two years and then I'd managed to really establish myself as a bit of a starter. So uh, I think of that unbeaten run, I think I played and started in almost every game so I'm 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 quite proud to have been part of that team like I played in all the finals all the semi-finals and it was a really good set of lads who knew each other's strengths and knew who did what and I think really had each other's backs because there's some games that as a team we had to really tough out and there's a few games that we proper grinded our way to wins that I think the bond of that team kind of got us through. So, yeah, that run was, yeah, probably sporting-wise, probably the best time that I've had. And me 
Matt Blakey and Matt Lawton formed our small group called the Fun Bus. So we've got a WhatsApp chat called the uh, called the Fun Bus with the three of us in. So we'd go okay. to games together. Uh, we we trialed Kevin Arundel as a member, yeah. but he, but he didn't make it and had to do his temporary retirement. Uh, and then recently we've just um, taken on Mike Jones as a full-time member of the Fun Bus as well. So I think he always wanted to, Mike, didn't he? <laughs> uh, yeah, so he's he's passed his probation now and he's been brought into the Fun Bus WhatsApp group. <laughs> <laughs> so whether you were winning them trophies or going on them runs or not, mate, would you have... Would you have enjoyed your time as much and would you have held it as in high regard as you do? Yeah, mate, 100%. I think the environment and the culture of that team was spot on, yeah? Like, it was all lads who just wanted to come down, have a crack and have fun. So, I think even last year when everything didn't go our way and we lost the odd game here and there and we lost the league trophy final to LSH and we lost the Lancashire Cup. That was still a brilliant year in terms of the social side and in terms of the group. So I would definitely I would definitely say that regardless of results, the Wids was a brilliant place to play rugby and I'd recommend it to anyone right mate so you're no longer playing now are you you're a fan like myself now but what have you been doing with yourself since you've stopped playing mate yeah so I think I played the first six or eight games of this year so uh, signed up to do the Rob Borough Marathon in Leeds in May yeah. So I tried to juggle both and play and train for that. But obviously for a six foot five fella weighing 18 stone, dragging himself around the marathon, it's quite a big achievement. So I've been trying to get out on at least four training runs a week. And if I played rugby on a Saturday, my body would be that beat up that I couldn't do any decent training runs until the Wednesday and then I'd have the Wednesday, Thursday to train and then I couldn't run on a Friday because I'd need my legs to be fresh for the Saturday game so I'd give the club two weeks notice because Mike Jones was on holiday so I knew that if I left I'd kind of be dropping them in it a little bit until Mike came back, so I told him I played the last two weeks and then I was finishing up. Um, I won't say I'll be finished up long term. Uh, we'll have to see about next season, but my missus will be kicking off when she hears me talking about <laughs> a, a, a potential comeback, but I definitely miss the environment and the team. So I uh, listened to Kieran Arndell's 
podcast and he said that he had to come back because it felt like he was missing something in his life and that's definitely how I feel. So I've enjoyed the challenge of training for the marathon, but it's definitely not the same excitement of being in the changing rooms before a match or being in the changes after a good win or just being in the middle of a really physical game. It doesn't give you that same buzz and that same high. I know people talk about a high when you complete a big run or a major race, but I wouldn't say they're comparable to winning a game by two or three points. Yeah, no, you'd rather smash someone, mate, than smash the path. Definitely, mate. Yeah. Right, so it's that time of the chat, fella. I've got a few daft questions for you. Definitely, go on, mate. So... Any pre-match superstitions? Right, this is going to sound really stupid, but Jaffa Cakes. So I'm Massive on Jaffa Cakes, me. Yeah, so me and Matty Lawton on that 50-odd game win that the Wids went on, on the journey to every game, we'd share a packet of Jaffa Cakes. So one of... Mike Jones is bribed to get us into the fun bus. Whereas he went, whereas he went to Tesco and bought in like bulk. Uh, it must have been twenty packets of Jaffa cakes as like a bribe to try and get himself in. But the the first match on that run where we didn't have any Jaffa cakes because we forgot and then we couldn't find a shop on route was old. Brodlians in the National Cup so uh, we actually attribute that loss to the lack of Jaffa Cakes before the game <laughs> Mike was a smart man going in purchasing multi-packs there wasn't he yeah so um, I think Mike and Matty have kept the Jaffa Cake tradition alive as well so even though me and right. Matt Blakey played a bit less this year I still think there's Jaffa's every week. <laughs> so, the, so you probably won't know the name, mate, but if you can remember the club and number or position, feel free to share. But the toughest player you played with in and against. So, and, and the definition of toughness is very different for everybody, Sammy. Yeah, so in terms of played against, it's not so much a player, but teams like Didsbury, where... If you look across the team, you can't tell who the props are and who the centres are. So it's all lads who might not be the biggest, but they're all fit and they can all handle themselves physically. They've always been the most challenging team. Like I'll quite happily have a big lad charge at me all game, but teams that are super fit and super quick have always been ones that have challenged me and probably challenged the wids the most yeah and then in terms of who I played with it's a tough one really like I know Tom O'Neill gets battered about every week and he's always up for taking a bit of a tough ball isn't he so he's a tough kid isn't he so in terms of toughness probably Tom O'Neill or just 
any lad that puts themselves up to play in the front row, mate, they're doing a tough job in there. You couldn't pay me to turn up and play in the front row. <laughs> Honestly, I've seen lads get yeah. turned turn inside out. So all the lads that play in the front row are put, putting their hands up in terms of toughness, aren't they? Yeah, no, they are to be fair, mate. So your favourite away ground that you've played at, because you'll have visited many as a fan, won't you? So I'll tell you what, then we'll change it. So your favourite away ground as a fan and your favourite away ground as a player. So I like, you know, proper traditional rugby league grounds like Castleford yeah. and Wakefield. Wakey, yeah. They're always the best grounds, I think, to go to as a fan because it feels like it's a proper rugby league occasion then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Terms of favourite ground I played at, I quite like the Wigan ground. Oh, like quite high up on on the hill. Yeah. Um, I I quite like to go there because that pitch is lovely as well. Isn't it? It's like a bowling green. Yeah, they've done well on their pitch actually, haven't they? Yeah, so that's probably my favourite pitch to go and play on. Right, in terms of, yeah. No, that's not a bad shout. It has definitely got better. I've been there when it, it ain't great, but they, they have sorted them pitches out now. So nope. say you're out with the um, the gang, mate, with, with Mike now involved, or the club, or family, friends and stuff, and the microphone ends up in your hand. What are you giving us, Sam? See, so this is a competitive one because I know Kev led better, as this is his favourite song as well, but... I want it that way by Backstreet Boys. <laughs> I think I could do that one now without the words on the screen because that is the only go-to song that I've got. That's the only one I've got in my locker and it's the only one that I can ever pull out under pressure. <laughs> so, yeah, Backstreet yeah, Boys, yeah. I want it that way. Right, and if you could go back and tell the younger you something that you've learned so far in life, what would it be? Oh, mate, it would definitely be join the Maguire programme a lot sooner because I know I've only been on it since November. But in terms of personal and professional life, it's honestly, it's transformed my life and how comfortable I am in terms of not just in speaking situations, but having a stammer. It's a bit like a dripping tap. So sometimes you won't hear it, but there's times like when you'll be laying in bed at night and you can just hear that tap dripping and it's enough of a noise for you not to be able to go back to falling asleep. I think the drain of constantly being concerned about if I'm going to be able to speak or not I think joining that programme I think doing it at 33 if I'd have done it at 13 mate it would have transformed my life and how comfortable I've been in my own skin so that would definitely be the advice that I'd give to myself moving forward Well we'll get that shirt like mad then mate because hopefully if one kid can hear it and yeah, mate. Cause and joins it. You've done your job, Sam, haven't you? 100%, mate, yeah. 
Right, mate. So you're one to fifteen that you've played with throughout life. Okay, so number one, Matty Lawton. Feel disgusting saying it, but um, yeah, he's a class actor. Number one, isn't he? So um, yeah, we were on a boy as well. Yeah, we won a night out after one of the Lancashire Cup or Lancashire trophy games, and he started off by telling his wife he was the best prop in the club and then he had a few more beers and then he was the best prop in the league and then and then a couple of more beers in he was the best prop in, in the North West and then I think by the end of the night and he was 10 deep he was telling her he was the best prop in the North of England so he definitely backed himself so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then number two he won't like me putting him there, but he did play a game there on the tank. Will Patient. I think he's lost a bit of mass recently because he's done one of these transfit 10-week cuts, hasn't he? But, yeah. But just to fit him in with the rest of the lads I've got in the back row, I think if Will put a bit of size on, I think he'd be class as a... Hooker, because he gets round the park so well. It'd be like having four yeah, lads. He in, does. Four lads in the back row. Uh, number yeah. three, Matt Blakey, aka the Cube. He's the <laughs> he's the perfect size man to play at three. I think if he'd have took up rugby union a bit earlier and had a few more years, maybe learning his craft at three. Mate, he'd be class. Right, he's dead strong. He's the perfect build for it. Yeah, Matt would be yeah. one of the three. Um, yeah. Number four, Mike Garrity. I think when yeah. he's on song, mate, he's unbelievable. So we played Digby Talk at home this year. It was one of my last games, and mate, he had them on strings. He's got the ball handling, and I think he understands the game really well. Yeah, he does, Mike. Yeah, number five, a lad called Mike Connick, who I played with at Eagle. He's a man after your own heart, John. He's a proper grub. Uh, I wouldn't know what you mean by that. But... <laughs> oh, no, no. He's just one of them that gets through all the dirty work and yeah. he's a similar height to me, so he's a line-out machine as well. Right. Uh Number six, Kieran Arndo. I know he said on yeah. his podcast that he didn't like it at six, but uh, Keith, but Key's class, isn't he? Like, yeah, he is. Yeah, uh, he can do it all, and he's got that um, dog in him, hasn't he? Where he just wants to be involved in everything. Yeah. Number seven, new bus member Mike Jones. I think Mike Jones for me is probably the best player at the wins he's not paying me to say that either but he's classmate uh, he can do he can do though can he like the brown envelope yeah. is encouraged yeah mate he can do everything and I think I know he won't like me to say this but if he applied himself physically mate he could go up like four or five yeah. leagues Mike he's absolutely class in it uh, yeah he is good mate and he runs a good line-out as well, to be fair. Uh, number eight, Tom O'Neill. 
he gets through all the tough carries, doesn't he? Um, I think he gets slightly overused by the wins, but yeah, mate, he's class, isn't he? Yes. Nine, Josh Kenyon. He was nine for most of that run. And I know uh, he plays off confidence, Josh. So if he knows that he's getting backed, he's class, isn't he? Like, uh, and he kicks really well out of nine as well. Like He kind of pops out of the pocket and kicks really nicely, which adds exactly. another dimension, yeah. Number 10, Kev Ledbetter. Uh, it's no surprise to me anyway that the Wids had a bit of a dip in form the middle of this year, and that's when Kev uh, decided that he wasn't going to play for a bit because he had his knee operation. Um, so Kev is the glue that kind of holds that team together. I think as a captain and as a 10, I think the team needs him and I think he really holds the team together in terms of both tactically and his leadership. Number 12, Liam Lawton. Uh, he's good for a half break and he can always get his arm free for an offload. He might not be the quickest centre, but he, he does make the odd break every now and again. Yeah. Uh, number 13, a lad called Jack Banzik that I played with an eagle. That lad was an absolute monster. He just run over people for fun. Uh, and he could put a shot on as well. He'd fly out of the lines, whack boys. So, yeah, Jackie was class. Wingers, uh, I know I only played within the back end of last year and the first half of this year, but Jack Krause, mate, that lad's first size, pound for pound, he must be one of the strongest lads that's turned out for the wids and he's a proper finisher. Yeah, he's got uh, some at Krause, he? Yeah, and then on the other wing, uh, Josh Payton, mate, Josh Payton can finish as well, like, Josh Payton's a top, top player, and he can more than punch above his weight in defence, can't he? Yeah, he can fall asleep anywhere and all. And he's always good value on the bear, isn't he? Because he always ends up falling asleep there. I've got some top. I've got some top uh, video footage of Josh Payton from Matt's stag doing Benidorm that I'll share for the right price. Uh, and then fullback, it's got to be Andy Owens, Andy Clark. Um, yeah, mate, he's he's class and he's kicking from hand and he's kicking at goal. Got the wins over the line of some tight games. It's no surprise now that he's playing semi-pro at Rochdale, is it? Cause no, not at all. He's an absolute class act. You've been listening to Trot the Eggin. Thanks to our sponsors, Bardell Sports. Follow us on Twitter at Trot the Eggin and Instagram at Trot underscore the underscore egg underscore in.